I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hello, hello, hello. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and I'm here today with two very special guests. Maybe we'll start with, Kendra, can you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Kendra Pierre-Lewis, and I'm a climate reporter with the Gimlet Spotify show, How to Save a Planet. Hey, thank you for being here. And Maddie? Hi. Oh, okay. This is what I do for a living. I'm Maddie (laughs) Safaya. I am the host of NPR Shortwave, which is NPR's daily science podcast. And I have invited you both on here because you're participating in a segment that is a regular for us, uh, which is mortifyingly at this point uh, called Ask Sam. Wow, 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 Sam. <laughs> Why do geese make bees? Does a bumblebee sneeze? Can a person eat trees? Can a polar bear freeze? Is a kidney stone kind of like a pearl in a clam? Well, I don't know. Ask Sam. I just want to play that for you to get you all in the mood. <laughs> That's a, it's a very specific mood, Sam. It's a very specific <laughs> mood. I feel like I need to buy a banjo. The short version of this we have listeners who are submitting questions all the time, uh, and we, we pull them out, we speculate wildly, and then we find experts who actually know the answers. So, are you ready? Sure. As long as we're not the experts who actually know the answers, Sam. I am definitely not. <laughs> okay, our first question comes from Kate in Vermont. I walk every day, and, you know, there are a lot of trees in Vermont. And I'm a tree hugger. I'm literally a tree hugger. And so I hug them, and... I, I always feel a, a sense of calm when I do that. But I'm wondering, is there anything that makes that happen? And do the trees notice when people hug them? All right. Do the trees know when you hug them? Thoughts? Yes. 
Wow, right out the gate. Right out the gate, Kendra. There's this great book somewhere behind me called Teaching the Trees, which is all about like the wonders of trees. And then there's this other book that behind me called Plant Something that I'm forgetting the title of. Mm -hmm. And basically... Plants know a lot, and I just fully believe that the trees, they're like the, like, Tolkien wasn't so far off with the whole end thing, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm with Kendra. I'm with Kendra. Like, I, I, I remember us reporting something about if you talk to plants, do they know? And the answer is, like, kind of. Like, they can sense pressure, I think. Uh, you know, you got to be out here being a tree, and that, you know, a human will hug you, but also stuff gets gets up in there. So, like, Yeah. I think they do. I have to say, everyone was very anxious at the beginning, but like right out of the gate, everyone's just like knocking it out of the park, left and right. Kendra sounds very confident. Citing books in the in the shelf behind you. Um, I for me, this question immediately brought to mind the work of Dr. Suzanne Samard, who is credited with finding evidence that forests are connected by this underground network of fungus around the roots that like share nutrients and information and and all sorts of things. It's called the Wood Wide Web. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and while I did not get to talk to Dr. Samard, I did get Ferris Jaber, who's a science journalist who just wrote about Dr. Samard in a New York Times magazine cover story. And and exactly, you both nailed it. Like there's a ton of evidence that plants can sense uh, pressure waves and respond to them. There is research showing that trees and other plants can pick up on things like the the wing beats of a visiting insect. Um, you know, some flowering plants will sweeten their nectar when they pick up on the wing beats of a bee. Um, there's some studies showing that the roots of plants can pick up on the sound of running water and will grow towards that sound. Um, and one of the famous examples of this is that trees ha are able to defend themselves from insect attacks. Like, not when an insect attacks the tree itself, but a caterpillar might start munching on the leaves of a tree nearby. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there are now, like, dozens of studies that will show that that other trees around it will start to ramp up production of chemicals that defend them against those same insects. Um, I'm just going to point out that that is indeed in Teaching the Trees. Wow, 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 <laughs> yes. wow, wow. Another plug, another plug. I should actually make sure that's the title. Hold on. <laughs> So, okay, chances, I feel like chances are good. The tree knows if you're hugging it. Right, um, right. Or the tree can perceive. Do we need to talk about, like, what is the difference between to know and to perceive? I mean, <laughs> Sam, it's a big question. And also, are you okay is my other question. Well, we are, you know, none of us are. None of us are. I found my tree book. It is indeed... <laughs> Teaching the Trees by Joan Maloof. And the other plant book was What a Plant Knows. What a Plant Knows is a good one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so what I'm saying is, is I'm pro trees. Pro trees. Yeah. Actually, Kendra, why don't you just crack that open and start reading that to us for the rest of the hour? <laughs> <laughs> but Sam, what about what about like her other question, which is like, why do I feel good? Like, isn't yes. there that like nature bathing situation Forest happening. bathing, yes. yes. So this, I asked Jaber about this one too because he has he has written, uh, a, you know, for years about uh, this whole subject. Essentially, he was like, attention is a limited resource 
And when you're wandering around in the woods, your attention's just wandering with you. It's, you, you know, it's like, oh, a bird, oh, a leaf, oh, a tree. Your attention is able to drift uh, much more naturally in a much more relaxed way from moment to moment. You know, you might be looking at the surface of a lake, watching the ripples, the leaves are falling from the trees, a bird flies by, and that can replenish our mental resources. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of buoys, like the biophilia with E.O. Wilson and the fact that like people who have hospital rooms that look out onto nature heal faster than people have hospital rooms that look out onto like a brick wall. I told you I know too much about trees. But but there is also <laughs> literally, because they asked that question, they thought it was just a relaxation question around high blood pressure and diabetes. And what they found was, no, there's something else biochemical going on. Like literally when you go for a hike, you're being dosed by trees. Wow. Kendra, I, you just, I mean, this is amazing. Also, I feel like maybe I'm going to really go outside this week. You know, like I feel like this could be the week. I'm really going to leave the house. This is amazing. Shall we hop to the next question? All right, what do we got? Here it comes. Hey, Sam, this is Sheila calling from Greenfield, New Hampshire. My question for you today is, what makes a washboard? For decades, I've driven over New Hampshire dirt roads and jiggled and jostled all over the place and have never been able to suss out what makes the washboards. That's why I'm sure you're the guy that's going to have the answer. No pressure, Sam. <laughs> so first question. Do we all know what a washboard is? No. Okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. We got her. We got her. Okay, okay. This is why public radio is a network and there are reporters in rural areas. <laughs> Wait, for the record, I lived in rural Vermont for a solid year. <laughs> I never heard the word washboard. So don't blame me. Blame the Vermonters. <laughs> <laughs> go, go on. What's a washboard? A washboard is where you have a dirt road that that develops this like repeating pattern of bumps that are very close together. So when you hit it in your car, it's like, oh yeah, and your whole like your jaw vibrates and like you you know you worry uh-huh. that your car is about to fall into pieces. I have a theory. Do it, Kendra. I think it's related somehow to like the freeze thaw cycle. <gasps> Say more. Probably water gets into like the crevices in the road or whatever and freezes and then it thaws and it freezes and it thaws and it creates kind of these crevices and then rainfall comes along and washes you know because it gets warmer right and washes sort of the the soil that's been loosened by that freeze thaw cycle but obviously not all of it has some of it gets compacted to kind of in the middle and that's the the washer board part but the other parts get washed away is my theory that is a good theory wow i don't even know why i'm here do you need me for the rest of this interview I'm, like, pretty busy. You've got Kendra. <laughs> um, I, like, kind of hate to do this to you, but kind of love it at the same time. Uh, washboard roads are actually a dry road phenomenon. <gasps> Interesting. Oh. Uh, and to, to answer this question, I, I called up a gentleman named Stephen Morris, who is a physicist at the University of Toronto. And as far as I can tell, this is, like, his claim to fame is having studied washboard roads. Um, although I had, I realized halfway through the interview that I have talked to him before because he also studies the sort of periodicity of repeating ripples on icicles mm. when icicles form. Ooh. So he's like a repeating patterns guy. I was about to say, that's a specific beat. Yeah. <laughs> and what he says is, think of when you skip a stone on the water, how there's kind of like a predictable pattern of skips. So it's exactly the same as driving on the road. When you're driving on the road and you hit a tiny bump, no matter how small, it will throw the car up in the air at a mount, depends on how fast you're going. 
And if you're going fast enough, it will, it will come down and de deform the road a little bit behind the bump. Oh, but everybody's going at similar speed. And that little divot that you put in the road will throw up the next car. As soon as he started saying it, I knew it. You know, as soon as he said the answer, I knew it, Sam. You know? Here's like the interesting meta, like, you know, you got to expand your mind to, to get this, is that uh, washboards engender more washboards because when there's a washboard, people drive a certain speed, which means that... Did you hear that? I kind of said that she at the did. point in the middle, Sam. She did. Yes. Did you hear it? Okay. All right. Okay, yes. Okay. Um, I'm just trying to hang with Kendra, honestly. <laughs> Physics was always my worst subject, so. So so it's a feedback loop, essentially. Like, you know, there's a washboard. People drive a certain speed because of the washboard. The washboard gets worse. Uh, and it just keep, keeps going that way until somebody grades the road and flattens it out. Um, fun fact, uh, a similar thing happens on rails, like train rails. Mm -hmm. And they call, it, um, they call it corrugation in, in trains. And it leads to something called roaring rails, where just like the train makes this really loud noise uh -huh. um, so they have to grind the train rails periodically to get rid of it on them wow i didn't expect us to get to trains today but <laughs> pleased very pleased um i've got a closing thought here which is okay so a lot of people if you like hang out in rural areas long enough a lot of people will tell you oh so what you do when you hit a washboard road is you just have to go faster because you want to sort of like skip over the top of the bumps um morris has of course tested this theory if you drive really fast, uh, your tire will bounce from peak to peak of the washboard and you will not feel it. Um, and indeed, uh, that works, except you're in the air about half the time. Which is not so good for steering. <laughs> so you hear that, listeners? Just if you hit a bump, Sam says, drive as fast as you possibly can. That's what you should take from this. Thanks, Sam. And if you drive yourself off the road, that is not Sam's fault. Yeah, that's not that my not. fault. No, because the real solution, because it's true that you want to not go the speed that everyone else is going, but the real solution is to go slow. But if everybody did that, uh, then the washboard would be slowly smoothed out. And maybe you could keep it you know, to a manageable level. But the fact is that no one is willing to do that. <laughs> so the big thought here is that, uh, you know, washboard roads are this collective action problem where what's best for all drivers is not the best for each individual who's in a hurry. So... To be fair, though, yeah. most drivers probably don't know that by speeding up, they're contributing to the washboard problem. So it's really, true. it's a public information problem before you can argue that it's a collective action problem. Yeah. And I'm sure that once people had that information, they would make a personal sacrifice on the basis of everyone else. I think that's what we've learned. I mean, if COVID has taught us nothing, it's that we are all <laughs> rational actors, right? That's right. And collective <laughs> sacrifice, it's kind of our thing. It's kind of our thing. So. so that's what we should all be meditating on next time you're you're bumping down a bumpy road is the breakdown of civil society. <laughs> oh, I do that every day anyway. <laughs> Okay, we've got to take a quick break. Uh, so this is where I will say it's time to take a break. <laughs> Honestly, you nailed it, Sam. I think so. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and I'm here with Kendra Pierre-Lewis, reporter and producer for Gimlet's new podcast, How to Save a Planet, and Maddie Safaya, host of NPR's science podcast, Shortwave. Okay, Ready for the next question? Can we stick to biology? Yeah. Can you just get, if you could do actually uh, specifically bacteriology, maybe uh... I will say we are ending with a biology question, but we've got the next one is actually uh, electrical engineering. Oh God! <laughs> Hi, outside in. This is Zach calling from Maryland, just outside Washington D.C. I've heard of it. I was riding my bike recently along the Anacostia River and looking around, you know, as one does in the fall, and I noticed. Uh, big pieces of wood through which the power lines were growing. And I know sort of thinking back, I've seen this other places in my life as well, growing up in New England. Um, so I was just curious. I was, I was wondering, how does this happen? How do power lines, overhead wires grow through pieces of trees that then are presumably cut off so you just have these pieces of trees hanging there? Uh, yeah, thanks for feeling my call, and I hope you have an answer for me. I just want to be really clear. So literally, it's like a tree branch, and there's a power line just like going through it. So essentially, what what he's describing, and I've now found pictures of this, is where you have a section of a tree branch, and they've cut one end, and then they've cut the other end, but there's this like tree cookie just like hanging out in the utility lines. Um, and it's it's uh, common enough that I tweeted about this and and immediately got like on the ground responses from listeners who are like, oh, yeah, I got one of those outside my house. Yeah, I think what's the most horrifying thing about this is it feels like a thing I should know. But I'm like, <laughs> I don't even I can't even give you like a basic biology of how trees because I know that they're like obviously able to grow around and through things in like an unbelievable way. And I, 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 but I'm, I'm like blanking on the process for that. And when I mean blanking, I mean I never ever knew, and I probably won't know even after <laughs> it's you a blank tell space. me. It's a blank. It's just like <laughs> a, it's a chasm up there. I mean, my guess is is that in order to fix it properly, like get rid of the tree, you'd have to cut the line, and they just don't want to do that. And once you cut the tree down, that like whatever piece of wood is like not a big enough problem to the system for it to be worth going through. Right. And like fixing it, but you also don't want to cut it closer because you're just cutting the line and electrocuting yourself. So it's just easier to cut around it is my best guess. But this is a guess. Yeah. And this is working all my 
gaps in my knowledge. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was pretty good. I mean, I mean, essentially, it's it's a, a worker mismatch problem. The, like the workers you call to deal with a tree problem are not the workers who know how to splice electrical lines. At least that's what Greg Bruton, who is a senior electrical engineer with National Grid, told me. You call up your forestry crew and you're like, hey, you know, there's some trees that have grown into the lines. Hey, let's go cut them off. And you send a guy up the line who typically cuts down trees for a living. Like, he's not really keen about taking a, a chainsaw to, to something that could potentially kill him. So they call a forestry crew, and these guys aren't certified to deal with the electrical lines. So the easiest thing is just cut off both ends, which you can do because the wires oftentimes are insulated, especially in, in these rural areas. Like, there still exist spots where you can see just a bare wire along a telephone pole. But in most cases, if there's a lot of trees around, they armor them by putting up insulation mm -hmm. around the conductor. So it doesn't necessarily cause a fault if a tree just touches it. But I would like to, to ask Zach... Did you see what you think you saw, right? Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> Were you just, you, are you just gaslighting Zach right now, wait, Sam? Wait, 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 wait. So he said he, he thought it was going through the electrical wire, but there's a lot of other stuff on that pole, right? Sure. And it's very possible that it wasn't actually a tree through the electrical wire. It could have been the phone wire or the internet wire. So if you, if you go up the pole, there's actually a very set order of what the utilities are. And the fact that that whole setup should be standardized is something that that we learned the hard way. Tell, yeah, actually, telegraph poles they started out in. And then, you know, what was interesting is that the telegraph lines were higher than the power lines. And then you'd have, you know, individuals coming to fix the telegraph lines and getting electrocuted because the power lines were right below. There, there was also confusion behind what was routed to what. So you'd have people you know, receiving a phone call and instantly getting electrocuted because they ran power to the phone line. Oh, my God. No. One, I love this dude. He, <laughs> he has the best stories. Yeah. Uh, I would absolutely love to get a drink with him. I feel like we did the we did the worst on this one, and he was the best. That's yeah. how I yeah. feel about this. <laughs> I also thought you were asking me a deep biology question, and now we're talking about, like, functional tree cutting, and I'm having a great time. <laughs> I tried taking a functional tree cut cutting class in New York, but it's 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 highly competitive. It's hard to get in. It's super hard to get in. <laughs> Sounds like bonsai cultivation right there. Yeah. I guess that's not functional. It's sort of ornamental. No, no, they they actually make you. They send you up the trees. I thought you were making a joke, Kendra. This is a real story. <laughs> Kendra, did you try to take a functional tree cutting class? Yes, at the New York Botanical Garden. I don't joke. I'm just that strange. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> so um, one of the things I love about this question is that, you know, generally I love being able to just like go out in the world and like find... Uh, like hidden information that mm -hmm. that until you learn how to like decode it, you didn't know it was there. And right. and one of the things I really like is being able to like look up at a utility pole and and like learn some things. And so so to like impart some of that knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, if you look at a utility pole um, at the top, that's where the electricity goes. It's those it's those three lines usually along the top, and each of okay. those lines is a phase, which is basically just like a different wavelength of electricity. Um, and if there's just one of them, which you often see in like rural areas where I am, that's just they've only sent one of those phases down the line, so you couldn't like have a big you know factory at the end of that power line. Oh, okay. um, and then as you step down the, the pole, you start to hit like the phone line, 
the internet, um, like cable TV, which often are the same line. Um, and, and so really, it's just the ones at the top of the pole that could electrocute you and kill you. Okay, so feel free, again, audience, Sam says, climb up that pole. Hang on those. You can like, <laughs> Hang you on know. the bottom ones. That's fine. Drive as fast as you can. Okay, Sam. Okay, I've got it. I've got it. That's actually really nice to know. Yeah, yeah. I like it too. When I lived in New York, I was in New York during Hurricane Sandy, mm-hmm. and there's a downed I don't fully understand it, but there was a down power line, but it wasn't fully down, but it was live, and they didn't want to cut the power because if they cut the power, they would have to cut power to the entire the neighborhood. Circuit. So they would, yeah. yeah. So they just parked this poor police officer in one of those tiny little <laughs> cars, and like they like flag. put two cones, yeah, <laughs> just and a job for weeks. I'm not even kidding you, for weeks, but to just make sure that we didn't touch the wire. <laughs> Wow. Just a couple wow. of cones. That's what, that, that's what, wow, wow, wow. You got to give that guy like the sign, like the, that they like spin, the spinning sign guy in the corner. You got to give him one of those. He's got something to do all day. Okay. Last question. Hi, Sam. This is Debbie Bovier from Deerfield, New Hampshire. And I have a question about hummingbirds. We've noticed in the last three weeks or so that the number of hummingbirds has increased and the fights are off the charts. Our feeders are socially distanced by hummingbird standards at least 20 feet apart, but they're swooping and chasing all over our yard. What's going on? So, so I should clarify, this came in during uh, fall migration. So it was, okay. it was like peak okay. fall migration when this happened. I have a hummingbird feeder that I haven't put up and I'm fairly certain the birds don't like me. <laughs> we we can't get hummingbirds to come to our, or not excuse me not hummingbirds we can't get birds to come to our feeders period at our house we've we've had feeders out for like years and no, nobody like there you can see them twenty feet away but they're uninterested not in a, our not a single bird Sam not a single bird <laughs> literally all right but we gotta get what well, hummingbirds yeah, though okay, get back focus, to hummingbirds focus, focus. Yeah, yeah, oh oh okay. oh oh by the way um, there was a second question that was Ooh. associated with this one that that came in via email we don't have the, we don't have anyone reading this but mm-hmm. the question was simply do hummingbirds sleep if so, where? I don't see any nests. Go for it, Maddie. Okay, I feel like I, I've got some hummingbird knowledge. I'm ready to take a guess. So I know that hummingbirds are aggressive. They're very aggressive, just in you know, in general. You can hear their tiny bodies like smack together. And that normally happens, I think, during breeding season, which it doesn't sound like this was, but it can happen when there's not a lot of food available. So if it is like in a period of time, like the fall-ish, and there's not a lot of food, like we're starting to see less and less flowers and that kind of stuff, they can get aggressive over, like, food specifically. Nailed it. Okay. Biology. Yes, 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 (laughs) we're back. Also, fun fact, you know, that people didn't really understand how hummingbirds are able to eat so quickly until fairly recently, and it turns out that their little tongues go out open up as like like kind of you can kind of picture them as little tiny spoons and then they like grab the nectar so their their tongues break apart grab the nectar flap back and like pull it in and that's how they eat they actually their tongues break apart and grab it i mean i feel like that's similar to how i eat ice ice cream yeah it's actually (laughs) it's a conserved trait Uh, um, but yeah because they couldn't figure out how they did it so fast 
and like how they could do it upside down versus right side up because gravity didn't mean to like seem to make anyway sorry I'm just really excited about hummingbirds they also do nest I know that for sure they do have nests and I Mm -hmm. believe they also sleep as well they definitely sleep because all animals sleep and if you don't sleep you die so I'm not concerned about them not sleeping (laughs) okay 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 our hummingbird expert is Anusha Shankar who's doing a postdoc at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology um she says that, A, Maddie, you nailed it. They're fighting because they're fighting over food. Uh, and the reason our caller was seeing more hummingbirds at that particular moment is straightforward. Like, fall migration had begun, and all of the ruby-throated hummingbirds, which is the only species that are on the east east coast, like, well, basically, like, the entire eastern United States are ruby-throated. They're all headed down to Central America, where they, like, accordion down into this tiny little overwintering ground altogether. You know, like, they always fight. That's what they do. That's how they exist. Um sometimes they get an eye poked out or a few feathers plucked out but they'll be fine (laughs) (laughs) but they'll be fine don't be dramatic you've just lost an eye but the reason they fight so much over food is because their metabolism is like a tiny little jet engine going all the time they don't have much of an energy store as a backup if they don't feed all the time and so they feed every 15 minutes sometimes they could die if they don't feed for like two hours so they can die if they don't eat for two hours. So basically, they're the opposite of bears. Yes. <laughs> in a lot of ways, I feel, you know, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, so Anusha, her research has been to sort of like watch hummingbirds on camera and just see how they spend their days. As much as 80% of their day can be spent flying or hovering. So they're just like cranking through calories. Um, one hummingbird scientist calculated that if we wanted to do the equivalent amount of work as a hummingbird does and consume the equivalent amount of sugar relative to our body size, we would have to drink a can of soda every minute to keep up. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I remember reading that and being like, no, it's no. too much. <laughs> Um, which then this gets us to the connection between the fighting question and the sleep question, because if you've got to eat every two hours, how can you sleep, right? Um, and the answer to that is when they sleep, they sleep hard. So they enter a state of torpor essentially every night, which, you know, here's our bear connection. It's like they go into hibernation every night just so they can survive to the other side. If you were actually torpid and I shook you, you wouldn't be able to do anything about it for 20 or 30 minutes. Because so many functions in your body would be just switched off and you wouldn't be able to respond to outside stimuli. And that's one of the costs of topple and that's why everyone doesn't do it. So uh, if you've got a second, Google sleeping hummingbird uh, and see the images that pop up because... They, they, because they're torpored, sometimes they'll, they'll, they just grab onto like a little twig, right? And they fall asleep on the twig. And sometimes they'll just like tip over in the middle of the night. And <laughs> so there are these images that you can find on the internet of like hummingbirds sleeping uh, upside down yes. because they don't let go of the branch and they're just like frozen there to the branch. Uh, because they're, you know, they're like in hibernation. Their, their heartbeat drops from like 600 per minute to 50 per minute every night when they go to sleep. Hummingbirds are so wild and we're so fascinated with them. And as you just like keep peeling those layers, they just keep getting better weirder and, better. and weirder <laughs> and weirder and better. Which, you know? which leads me to my nest fact. You know, their eggs are like the size of a pea and they make these tiny little adorable nests that they hold together because the females go around and gather spider webs to hold together their <gasps> nest bits. Wow. It's amazing. I'm so glad spiders showed up in this episode. (laughs) Spiders, trains, what else do you need? (laughs) 
Okay, to to steal a Maddie Safiaism, wow, 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 that was super fun. <laughs> uh, huge thanks to both of our guests for this episode. Maddie Safiya is the host of the NPR podcast Shortwave. If you are not listening to it, what are you doing with yourself? It's like 10 minutes long. It comes out every day. And like Outside In, it is sometimes serious and sometimes pure joy. Kendra Pierre-Lewis is a fantastic climate reporter that I have been following for years. She is currently producing the Gimlet podcast, How to Save a Planet, which is a really accessible, no BS podcast that covers climate solutions. And as you can tell from this episode, the team has a ridiculous amount of knowledge that they're drawing from. So check out both pods and both pod people. We'll put a link to our show notes to all of those things. This episode of Outside In was produced by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with Taylor Quimby and Justine Paradise. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is... Wait, hold on. It's possible that if you only started listening to the show in the past couple of years, you don't know who Maureen McMurray is. Um, Maureen was Outside In's first executive producer. She was promoted to bigger and better things at the station here a few years ago. She pioneered a lot of the sound and the style of the show, and now she is bidding farewell to the station. Uh, She leaves really, really big shoes to fill, and we just wanted to say goodbye with this, uh, what maybe is the best radio moment (laughs) uh, I have ever recorded from a story that she did in 2017, where I took her and our other colleague, Jimmy Gutierrez, skiing for the first time. I don't don't like this. Oh my God, this sucks. I, I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> Just FYI, we are cracking away on our special bonus episode of 10 by 10 City Gutters and some other stuff we've got in the works. The Ask Sam theme song, Taylor tells me, did not have a banjo in it. It was a slide guitar. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. So you grab a piece of something that you think is gonna last. Well, you wouldn't even know a diamond if you held it in your hand. The things you think are precious, I can't understand. Are you reeling in the year? Morning, McMurray, ladies and gentlemen. We're getting speed. Oh my god! That is so good! <laughs> I thought like I was going kind of fast. You were going so fast! Okay. Hey everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.